everyone, welcome to episode one of the new TJ Media podcast. The date is the 2nd of April 2018 and my name is John. My name's Samantha. Hello Samantha. Hi John. Yep, good to see you. Yep. Uh, just so everybody knows, just to mention, you're, you're my sister, Samantha. Older, <laughs> older sister, not yep. necessarily any wiser. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've mentioned you a few times on the main uh, DST podcast. Mm-hmm. That's, really That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Big, oh, I'm only fan of things so far. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, you're also a big movie fan, big yeah, TV fan absolutely. as well. So yeah. We thought it'd be interesting to uh, do a bit of a spin-off podcast. Mm-hmm. What we're going to be talking about today is a film that has always interested us from a, a really young age, caught our attention and like really caught our imagination. Yep. As well, and it's impossible to talk about this film without kind of discussing the backstory and all the controversy that surrounded the allegedly true story upon which the film was based. Yeah, can I jump in there just to mention? I had a kind of an issue with uh, I did a JT at the Movies podcast, which is another spin off podcast we've yeah. done about The Disaster Artist, which oh, is yeah. a film yeah, about the making one. of The Room. And it's a bit of a similar scenario to that where you can't discuss the film, The Amsterdam Horror, without mentioning the true story behind it first. Mm-hmm. And then the even truer story before <laughs> before that about the murders that happened. So Yeah, so it, it can start to get a little bit messy. Yeah. And just while we've been doing our notes, this has already started to get a little bit convoluted <laughs> because there's so much that we want to touch on. Um, basically, the film that we're going to be talking about is the 1979 version of The Amityville Horror. Um, the film itself was directed by Stuart Rosenberg and it starred James Brolin, Margot Kidder and Rod Steiger, yep. um, who my brother's got some quite strong opinions about in oh, this oh film. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, the film itself was based on 1977 book from Jay Anson, book of the same name. It was based around events that took place between December 1975 and into January 1976. Yep. Um, over a period of 28 days. Now, basically, the storyline follows the Lutzes. They're a young couple who purchased their supposedly dream home on yeah. 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island. They buy it for a knockdown price based on the fact that six people had been brutally murdered in the house. Yeah, like um, a year earlier, wasn't exactly it? Exactly a year earlier. It's November 1974, the murders took place. It was the eldest son, Ronald DeFeo Jr., that murdered, like, literally his entire his family. His entire family, yeah. His mother, his father, two younger brothers, two younger sisters, wiped yep. them all out. <clears throat> Um, now, there's, there's a whole backstory behind the DeFeo murders there as is. well. Yeah, I mean... Uh... There was all kinds of theories at the time when it happened. I mean, I'm just going to throw a, a curveball in here, but there was like there was like theories that uh, the father was tied up in like mafia connections. Remember hearing about that yeah. at all? Yeah, I heard that as well. I mean, the the father seemed like quite a strong character. There were also rumours that he was abusing yeah. some of the children. It was quite an abusive, quite a hostile household, and that <laughs> was maybe what tipped Ronald DeFeo Jr. over into over like edge. you know eventually into like taking a shotgun. And murdering everybody. Yeah. But one of the weird things about the murder and the night of the murder was that although he did, he used a shotgun, shot every one of them in their beds in the house, but not one of them moved or heard um, the other family members being shot. They were yeah. all found in the same position. Can I jump in there as well? Uh, like, like you're saying, there, were, there was no sign that the family uh, struggled, moved. Nope. There was no indication afterwards they were drugged at all. They did tests for that. There, nope, was, there was no indication of being not. drugged. And, uh, oh, sorry, there was one final bit I was going to mention. Oh, there was no indication that he used a silencer. A silencer, yeah. no. And the police were saying afterwards that literally for the whole family to have been massacred in the way that they were, a silencer would have had to have been used in that house because some of the family members were in the same room, in the yeah. same bed. Literally, when the father was shot, I think, first... His mother never woke up. She was lying literally next to his father when he was shot. Yeah, and I'm not sure if this is hearsay, but wasn't there a thing where they were all lay in the same position as well, on the stomachs? Absolutely, the same position, on the stomachs, face down. um, But I think the mother was the only one that was shot in the head. Right. The rest was shot in the back. Okay. Um, So that in itself is a really fascinating story. There's so much to talk about. Just one final point on that. Even the neighbours didn't hear anything, did they? Nobody in the... uh, in the vicinity heard any no, of this commotion and I'm going on. Not sure of the timescales around this as well, but rumour always had it that the neighbours in the plots on both sides of one 
12 Ocean Avenue always had their blinds closed at the windows that faced 112 Ocean Avenue. Yeah. Now, whether that went back as far as when the DeFeos lived there, I honestly can't remember at this stage. But I know yeah. certainly both ne- both sets of neighbours felt really uneasy about that house. I think that's mentioned in Jay Anderson's book. When George Lutz turns up to view the house, he, he just notices that the houses on both sides the have all the shutters closed. and blinds closed facing the... Uh, 112, uh, 112 Ocean Avenue, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. So the story, the Amityville Horror story itself picks up 12 months after those DeFeo murders, follows the Lutzes who've moved into this dream home, and it basically covers um, the next 28 days. Now, during that 28 days, um, there are so many supernatural occurrences that were alleged to have happened to the, the Lutz family during the short stay in the house yep. that literally <clears throat> 28 days later they fled the house never to return, they left most of their possessions and it was a financial write-off for these guys. They literally returned the house to the bank, didn't they? They just yeah. gave up everything yeah. they had invested They in lost it. their $25,000 Sorry, that they'd invested in the property, yeah. which they couldn't afford to do. George Lutz had a business of his own. Um, you know, they were quite heavily financed against this property. It was the last thing on earth a young couple would have wanted to do. But 28 days later, they felt like they had no option but to do that. But to, I think uh, from a documentary we watched, I think Kathy mentioned it, that the house was no longer habitable. <laughs> That's, That's how she put it. the <laughs> phrase that yeah. they've used. I mean, we've watched a lot of interviews um, with the Lutzes and people who were involved in this whole case. And actually, the, there are only the Lutzes that come across as, as trying to unsensationalise the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I'd go a step further. I think in the documentaries and, and the, the stuff we've read, the Lutz family are the only ones who come across as having like the head screwed on. <laughs> Everybody else just seems yeah. mental surrounding yeah. the case. And they're just, like, like you mentioned, they're just trying to play it calm and like, you know, keep it, mm-hmm. keep a level head with it yeah. all. And that phrase was really indicative of where they were at. They were just saying, basically, look, they still won't talk about a lot of the events that happened, particularly on the, the last night in the house, which, you know, it was documented in the book that yeah. the film was then um, on the back of what happened that last night. But I think even in the book, it played down quite yeah. a lot of what happened. It, it it references a few things in the book that it never really goes into detail with, like a hooded white figure and stuff mm-hmm. just mentioned in like a passing kind of uh, glance almost. Yeah. But you feel like, in terms of the true story, there must there have been more to that. To yeah. It. And yeah. they they literally say even you know up until um, when the last set of interviews that we saw that they would never ever ever discuss in any detail what happened that last night. They yeah. just deemed the house to be uninhabitable, and that was when they made the decision to leave and leave all the possessions in it. Yeah. So I think regardless of what your feelings are about the Amityville story, there's plenty to talk about. Personally, I've always found the Amityville story to be absolutely fascinating and it's one of the most genuinely scary horror stories that I've ever heard, ever read, ever watched a film about. And the film itself, I've never seen a film since that's ever come close to kind of recreating that same um, eerie, creepy feel that this film manages to create. Well, I'll just mention off the back of that. In my opinion, films from the 1970s, they have this kind of bleak, gritty, realistic tone to them. Yeah, I agree. That once the 70s finished, films just stopped having that <laughs> that kind of feel yeah. to them. Like, uh, there's this, there's The Omen. All of William Friedkin's films, like Sorcerer and The Exorcist, they all have this really documentary documentary kind of mm-hmm. real feel to them. Uh they're not showy, you know what I mean. They're not uh, the Godfather stuff like that. They're yeah. not. They're not overblown. They're just storytelling, and mm-hmm. but they keep they keep things real. And with a horror film, it lends a certain kind of. It lends itself really well to that kind of atmosphere, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think as well. Although it does feel now when you watch it that it is very dated and it's very 70s. And I yeah. mean, Margot Kidder and George Brolin, you know, the characters that they play, you couldn't get more 70s than these people. Yeah, you know? definitely. But that's yeah. part of what lends it its charm yeah, for me. Definitely. Um, and then obviously there was a remake in 2005, which yeah, to my which... <laughs> mind <laughs> didn't have any of the same charm as the original. Well, if memory serves, we went to watch that the night it came out because we were like, we oh, did. we can't wait. We Amateur so remake. Excited. And it was absolute garbage, wasn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, it was dross. I mean, you mentioned there, like, we've got a bit of a background with the story in general. Yeah. Just in that we were growing up as kids when it was a big deal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
our mum read the book, the, the Jay Anderson book. Yeah. We because of I think mum just had the film on in the background. We saw the film loads as kids, <laughs> you yeah. know, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've spoke to her, Nick and Joe from the the main DC podcast that we, uh-huh. that we do. And they always mention about watching Disney films as kids, and that's why they went to Disney. We never had that kind of <laughs> no, that kind of. A, <laughs> we were watching stuff like this, stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street, that yeah, kind of Nightmare thing. Nightmare on Elm Street was another favourite of ours. Where, yeah. You know, probably at an age where we shouldn't have even really known what Nightmare on Elm Street was. <laughs> but we Especially, loved it. I feel in my case because you're four years older than me. You were like getting films on video, and I was just watching them. That's <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, <laughs> me and a lot of my friends would have gone to get videos out, and you would have been there and seen films that probably yeah. you wouldn't have done if you hadn't have had, you know, older people around, yeah. you kind of thing. But I think that that is why we're so fascinated with horror films and yeah. stuff like that. And I think as well, it's left me feeling really unsatisfied in later years because yeah. there's nothing to my mind that has ever really lived up to those horror movies. Of our younger years, you know, every horror movie that comes out, I've got such high hopes and I just get disappointed. I feel like we were kind of spoiled a bit with those (laughs) horror films as kids, yeah. But I think as well, that brings me on to something else about this story in particular that is really appealing and it's what um, um, differentiates it from a lot of the films that you'll see these days is that you never actually see what's haunting them. Yeah. And I love that. I love the fact that there's no great CGI monster at the end of it. There's no spirit as such. It's just this really malevolent, unseen demonic presence. Yeah. And that, that feeling of that threat that's carried through the whole film, to me, it's really difficult to replicate that. Yeah, you just hear disembodied voices, items being moved, and, and that mm-hmm. is creepier in its own way for me yeah. than seeing a CGI yeah. ghost pop out of a closet or something. Yeah. <laughs> and that was where the 2005 film went wrong really went wrong I think there, it? I think there was literally a CGI ghost popping out of a closet in that one yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was and like even the, the the bits that were really creepy in the 1979 version they managed to somehow take those bits and characterise them and, yeah, and give and them faces that it just didn't fit with the feel of the film to yeah, me at all yeah definitely so if we start off right at the beginning of the Amityville horror yep um, where I think we start with the Lutzes actually um, popping up at the house at 112 yeah. Ocean Avenue for their initial viewing, is that right? Well, we mentioned before, it's got quite a creepy opening credit sequence. Yeah, the, uh, the intro is really... Yeah, uh, the silhouette of the, the house against like a red uh, night sky. That was mm. quite good with creepy like children's choir singing over it. Yeah. Again, very 70s. Yeah, but... very atmospheric. The house itself, um, if you've not seen Amityville or heard anything about it, the house itself is really unique. And I think actually the, the house in real life now they've tried to change the appearance of it to make yeah. it less noticeable and stand out less on this street but it's just a beautiful old um dutch colonial style property which is kind of side on to the main road um it's a very long plot and then you've got this beautiful house a swimming pool at the back of that a boat house and garage at the back of that and then it all backs onto the river so you can see why the lutzes were just absolutely bowled over with this property yeah and definitely. it's huge isn't it and you mentioned earlier about how this film doesn't have, you know, CGI characters popping up. Mm-hmm. The house itself is basically a character, isn't it, in the mm. film? The house is like the yeah. the focus of the... It has these weird little um, half-moon or quarter-moon-shaped windows. windows at one end, which almost give it the characteristics of having a face of its yeah. own. And, yeah, it's It's like it's two evil eyes awesome pe- peering out kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. And I think the size of the house is really important as well because a lot of the interviews that you'll hear with Kathy Lutz after the event says that, you know, she says that literally somebody could have been on one floor of the house. I think it's a three-storey house, isn't it? Mm. Plus there's a basement. So there's a huge basement, which is the focal point for quite a lot of what goes on in the house as well. Then there's the ground floor, which is a massive living room, separate dining room, sunroom um, and kitchen. And then there are a load of bedrooms and the infamous sewing room yeah. on the next floor. And then there's another story, which is where these little quarter moon eyes are. Which I believe are in the children's playroom. That's that what right? becomes the children's playroom, yeah. yeah. And the boys' bedroom is up there as well. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, the film kind of starts off with that. I think it's the Lutzes just coming to view the house, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and they're being shown around the house by uh, like a realtor. 
Is that right? Yeah. yeah she's... And she's really doing the heavy sell, isn't yeah. she, at first? She is. Uh, I believe the way it goes, she's doing the heavy sell. And they just know they can never afford this house. And it's only at the end of the viewing when she explains what the price is. They're like, they, they, yeah. can't, they can't understand why it's, it's like so cheap. It's like $80,000, which for a house of this size, her words are that she wants them to see how the other half of Amityville live. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> plus, I think George has got a boat, hasn't he, which he's paying to keep somewhere else at the moment. Uh, I'd say like Marina or something, yeah. Yeah, so you know she knows that it would make sense for them to have this property, but they're just assuming it's way out of their price range. So when they find out it's $80,000, they're like... Yeah. Oh my god! I think I think in the book George uh, is quoted as saying like when he saw the price he thought like a zero had been left off or something. Exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. worth you know like half a million dollars or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But then does she actually tell them about the DeFeo murders? I think she does. She, she tells does them at that clean, point, doesn't she? Then that there were murders yeah. that had happened in the house. And mentioning that. While the house viewing is going on, uh, Stuart Rosenberg is that the name of the director? That's the, right. Yeah. He. Uh, I like the way he directed the scene of the house viewing as they're being shown round and they're walking up the stairs. The film like freeze frames and you can hear like thunder cracking in the background mm-hmm. and it does like a smash cut to what which we later learn are the DeFeo murders. Yeah. It's, uh, so DeFeo. each of these fabulous rooms that they're going into has got its yeah. own story. Yep, and you're seeing the actual murder of the DeFeo mm-hmm. family as they're being shown... Uh, shown around the house and I thought that was just again just something that it's a very 70s like touch but Mm -hmm. it's fantastic it just just sets the scene right from the start doesn't it that although this is the dream house it's just got so much misery already like woven like ingrained into it like yeah yeah yeah. Um, and it's quite a nice sunny day when they're looking around the house and everything looks lovely and they know there's quite a lot of work to be done and they know that financially it's not going to be a great move for them, but they will never, ever, ever get the opportunity to buy a house like this again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all very hopeful and it's all very, you know, this this young family, um, you know, setting out on their own hopes and dreams with this gorgeous house. Yeah. So they decide that they're going to buy it. Um, and then the film flips to oh, sorry, moving just, in day. Just before that, uh, there's one creepy little scene that I like where... They've agreed to buy the house and they've left. And the realtor's downstairs in, in the kitchen, That's I think. right. She's left sitting on her own, isn't she, in the kitchen? Yeah, not... just writing up the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And she just gets, like, a creepy chill. Like, I think a wind blows through or something. Yeah. And, again, she just doesn't feel comfortable there and she leaves. Mm-hmm. It just, again, sets the tone yeah, for what, what's just to come, creepy. kind You don't of see anything. It's this beautiful, sunny kitchen, lovely, lovely space. Yeah. And she's just, something is not right. So she just gathers all the paperwork up and goes, doesn't yeah. she? But just off the back of that, I will mention something from the remake in 2005. I won't make a habit of this. This is the only, the only time I'm going to mention <laughs> you it. You love the 2005 <laughs> film. <laughs> this scene in the 2005 film, as they're being shown around their dream house, the realtor is like pushing them around saying, like, right, let's go into the sewing room. And the realtor can see like ghostly activity going on behind what? them. She's like, don't look that way, don't look that way. Just get, you know, oh, never mind the no. fact that she's got proof of ghosts here. She's just more bothered about selling the house. Oh, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, ignore, ignore that go- the ghost. Just go in this room now and have a look. <laughs> just, just dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> so, anything else you want to say on the two thousand and five film? Seeing as you're uh, such well, a fan, got a few, got a few notes here. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to that. <laughs> So, we're going back to 1979, (laughs) where it's moving in day. And again, it's really upbeat. The atmosphere is great. Um, George and Kathy Lutz have got two boys and a girl, young children. I think the Kathy's actually, aren't they? They're not George's. George is their stepfather. George is an ex-Marine as well. I think we need to throw that in here as well. So, he's not a guy that is going to scare easily. So, we need to go into it knowing this about George Lutz. Definitely. Can I mention one thing there as well? I've only just thought of this, but... That's one thing I like about the film as well. If this film, well, it was made now, it was remade in 2005. <laughs> but if they made it nowadays, there would be a whole like, backstory of, uh, oh, the ex-husband, he's still hanging around and George is jealous of his relationship. In fact, I think that actually was a plot for the 2005 but, remake. Yeah. Uh, but it's not mentioned it's in like, the It's not even brought up. You never, you never meet the ex-husband. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, it, mm-hmm. It's not relevant to no. the story whatsoever. The only, the only thing about their relationship that is referred to whatsoever is that during the course of the film, I think they do start to call him dad. Yeah. Um, and that's a big thing for George you know because yeah. I think this relationship is relatively new and you know but it, but it's all really optimistic and really great outlook and what have you 
Um, they all are moving in the house. They've also got this enormous dog, which is like a half-breed Malamute, I think, yeah. um, <clears throat> called Harry, um, who is like very much part of the family. And they're yeah. all having a great time on moving in day. They decide in the end to take some beers. Kathy and George get some beers, and they go out to play with the kids and the dog out at on the, the lake. back of the house. Yeah, because they're literally bordering on to... Um, yeah. The river or the lake or whatever it is. So these guys are out there having a great time. In the meantime, um, a Catholic priest who's a very close friend of Kathy's family yeah. um, turns up to bless the house as he's been requested. Do you want to uh, give his name at this point? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to give his name, but he's got so many. <laughs> um, in real life, this guy was called Father... Pecoraro? Pecoraro, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, in the book, he's referred to as Father Mancuso. Yeah. And in the film, he's referred to as Father Delaney. So he's gone from being of Italian background to Irish background yeah. by the sound of it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I am going to refer to him as Father Delaney because that's that's how he's referred to in the film. But yeah. the upshot of it is he's known Kathy's family for a long time. Um, George is not a Catholic. Kathy is a non-practicing Catholic, yeah. but obviously um, has, has retained a relationship with Father Delaney. So he's been asked to come and bless the house. He turns up at the side entrance to the house, hasn't yeah. realised that the whole family are out around the back of the house. So he lets himself in and he just starts what he thinks is a routine blessing. Yeah. that he would do all the time. And he works his way through the house and everything's fine, no adverse reactions, except he starts to become, as he goes upstairs, he gets a little bit um, He starts nauseous. to feel like unwell. Mm-hmm. And he's starting to get his sweat a little bit yep. and he's just dragging himself round. And he goes into the sewing room. The sewing room, yep. where it all happens. Which I believe, just to jump ahead here, I think... Uh, Lorraine Warren called it the heart of the house, did she, in that yes, documentary? Yes, I think she did, yeah. yeah. So we'll come on to the Warrens later because yeah. they're, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on the Warrens really, yeah. couldn't we? But they were very heavily involved with this case as they were with a lot of other cases um, that have appeared in Hollywood films recently. Yeah. Um, so Father Delaney goes into the sewing room and notices that he can see from the window of the sewing room that the family are all playing outside with the kids and the dog That's and right, yeah. having a great time. So he's thrilled by all of this, continues with his blessing, starts to get everything set up and just becomes overpowered by this ill feeling and he's, he's nauseous. Well, and I think sweating. at this point he's spotted the flies on the window as well, hasn't he? He's noticed. I think he tries to open the window <clears> to <throat> shout down to the family and yeah. realises that the old-fashioned like kind of sash windows are just wedged. And he can't get them open, which yeah. he thinks is very strange. And he's getting hotter and hotter. And then he notices the flies are starting to buzz around the window. And literally within the space of about five minutes, he just gets overwhelmed by everything, doesn't he? Yeah. And the flies are multiplying. Literally, he turns away from the window, turns back, and there's just hundreds of them. Yeah. And they start to go on him. And um, does the door slam shut? First I think it opens first. Right, okay. Maybe it, slam, maybe it slams to, to lock him in there, but then at one point... It swings open with squeaky hinges. Well, again, I like the, the direction of this, the, the, the sound direction. You can, it becomes overwhelmed by the flies, and you can just hear the, the, the buzzing of, the flies. of a thousand flies yeah. just, just ringing in his ears. Then all sound just drops out, and you just hear the door creak open. Mm-hmm. And that's when... Uh, he hears a demonic voice just commanding him to get out. Get out. Which yeah. is really freaky. Which he does. <laughs> which Rod Steiger is yeah. heading down those stairs yeah. faster than his little legs can carry him. <laughs> so he's been to try and do this aborted blessing and left before the family even realised that he's there. Yeah. Um, I think they catch him as he's getting to his car, do they? They're walking they? back up to the house, but he's like think, really in, vomiting. I think in the book they do. I think in the film he just literally drives he away and he's, he's thrown up away. and stuff, yeah. And that in itself is really fascinating because that marks the start of Father Delaney's own trials and tribulations, which carry on for many, many, many weeks. But interestingly enough, um, in in real life, or yeah. certainly you know in what's portrayed within the book, the Lutzes never really knew the full extent of what had happened to Father Delaney following that visit right. to Amityville. I mean, I'm okay to mention this here. You, you might have mentioned it earlier, maybe, but just the fact that the book written by Jay Anderson mm-hmm. was put together from like 45 hours of, of 
tapes recorded by the Lutz That's family. That's right. Yeah, we've not touched on that. But Jay Anson never actually met the Lutzes. No. Uh, and they only come to learn of, according to the book, they only come to learn of his issues when Jay Anson contacted uh, mm-hmm. Father Pecoraro or Mancuso from the book. Or Delaney. Or Delaney. And <laughs> I presume he got re- recordings from him and patched it all together afterwards. And that's only and when they that become aware of it. And that's when the Lutzes yeah. realised. Because from that point on, um, really, the relationship between Father Delaney and the Lutzes just breaks down. Now, every time he tries to contact the Lutzes, or they try to telephone him, literally their telephone call is intercepted by shrieks and crackles, and they yeah. never actually get to have a full conversation with him, really, by telephone. Um, but as it transpires, I mean, the way the film portrays <clears throat> what happens to Father Delaney is, again, pretty overblown. And it's all very dramatic. And he ends up having this terrible time. And then um, he ends up being blinded, doesn't he? Yeah, Rod Steiger. uh, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) he's a great actor and stuff, isn't he? You know, he's a a well-renowned actor. Mm -hmm. But I think in this film, I think he was going through a weird period. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it wasn't his finest hour. No. Uh, like there's a scene where he becomes blinded in the church. That's right. He's trying to do a blessing for them yeah. from the church remotely um, because he, he daren't go back to the house and they've not been allowed by this entity to contact him. So he thinks he's going to take it upon himself to do a blessing in his church. Yeah. Um, and he has this weird episode where one of the statues cracks crumbling. and falls and, on him, blinds him. And he's getting more into his sermon, going, the power of Christ compels you. <laughs> 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 yeah. He turns into the father um, from that, a, the, ex- the exorcist the for a second. <laughs> um, so it doesn't really end well for, for, for Father Yeah. Yeah. But however, that there was nothing anywhere near as dramatic as that in the book or what I'm deeming to be the, the actual true story. Mm. But I think it was far more sinister what really did happen to him because he was just plagued for weeks by this awful flu that wiped him out and he yep. would literally be bedridden for days. He had no strength. He had blisters yeah, on his like hands. Yeah, welts on his hands. Yeah, yeah, that led him to wear these like white cotton gloves so that nobody else in his diocese kind of realised what, what he was going through. Yeah. But more humiliating than anything else, there was this smell, this all-pervading smell of excrement yeah. that kind of followed him around all his chambers or wherever yeah. it was that he lived with a load of other priests um, and, and caused them all to evacuate for days because yeah. of this stench. According to the book, they had to like burn incense and stuff to, to clear yeah, the smell to try out. and clear it. But what is the relevance of that smell? Um, because that does often follow demonic incidents. Well, I believe it's a visit by the devil. I think, that, I think that's how the book... Quite uh, specifically, it is yeah. the devil. Mm, yeah. well, well, it wasn't great for um, the poor priest, anyway. No, so, uh, but it was nowhere near as dramatic as what happened in the film. Definitely. Um, although still really very sinister. Got a good segue there, talking of a uh, smell of excrement. We go back to the house, mm-hmm. and George has got diarrhoea at this point. That's right. George yep. is really poorly. George is never really right from the day that he moves into the house. He constantly is cold. He's got this fire burning all the time. Even when yeah. the temperature is showing as being in the 70s and 80s, he's still absolutely freezing. He's got terrible diarrhoea. It just starts out as little things, doesn't it? That's the yeah. point kind of thing. Yeah. We mentioned I- earlier how Kathy said the house became uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my interpretation of it is it's just a lot of little things that grew and grew and got to the point where they just couldn't and just put up with anyone. really sinister. And as well, I mean, we're, <coughs> you know, we're looking back on this story now in 2018. You know, in, in 1975 yeah. or whenever it was, you know, it wasn't the Amityville horror. Yeah. It was just a family that had moved into a house that didn't really know what was happening to them. And although we're referring to it all now in terms of demonic um, entities and visits yeah. from the devil they didn't know they didn't associate it with anything like that when it was actually happening to them they'd had yeah. no experience of anything like this before they just thought they were just going through a really bad run of luck or you know yeah. there was something wrong with the house itself the structure maybe that was causing problems and again not to jump too far ahead but there's one bit where it's mentioned I think Kathy mentioned the possibility of like do you think it could even be haunted and George is like don't be ridiculous don't be you know, like, they I don't just discounted it yeah. yeah it was only really Father Delaney or Father Mancuso that, or Father Pecoraro or Father Pecoraro <laughs> that was the one that kind of really suspected from the start that this was something that was otherworldly or supernatural yeah. they just 
saw it more as an inconvenience than anything else to start off with until it started getting to the point where it was really impacting so badly on them. Yeah. Um, so this that you're referring to where George was really poorly then is in the run-up to, I think it was Kathy's brother's wedding. That's right, yeah. George's best man. The family are really heavily involved in the plans for this wedding. And Kathy's younger brother turns up at their house on the morning of the wedding and he's got $1,500, I think it is. Yeah. In his inside jacket pocket. To pay the caterer. To pay the caterer, yeah. Because money's tight for them all, you know. It's not, they're not an affluent family by any stretch of the imagination. But not only that, like just again in terms of the, the, the times that it was. Now you just do an online bank transfer, you know, you well, just exactly, pay the money through. Yeah, in in the seventies, like he's literally got this wad of cash that he's protecting with his with life, him. kind of thing. Yeah, and all he's done is literally put his suit jacket down on the settee for ten minutes while he was having a coffee or whatever. Goes to pick the suit jacket back up, and lo and behold, the fifteen hundred dollars is gone. Yeah. So the whole family are literally searching the house top to bottom. They never found the $1,500, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think it ever turned up even later. No, I don't think so, no. Um, Sometimes in the house what would happen is things would go missing but then turn up in other areas at later dates, but I don't think that happened with the money. So George ended up having to be the one to foot the bill for the $1,500 to to bail the young couple who were getting married out. And I think it's also this same morning, the morning of the wedding, where there are the incidents with the toilets, where this is all related in much better detail in the book than it ever was in the film. Yeah. Um, In the book, the kids shout down to the mum and ask her to come up and have a look because the inside of all the toilet bowls are just black. Yeah. As if they've been painted black. And she's scrubbing and scrubbing and can't get it to come off and can't understand. And I think, again, there's an odour with it, isn't there? You know, yeah. like a weird... Well, there's almost... Sometimes in the house, there's two competing odours. The smell of excrement will, like, you know, pervade the house. Well, there's also... That's because of George. With that's the... because of George with his problems. <laughs> but there's this sweet, sickly, perfumed yeah. smell as well that they they come across quite often. So yeah. they're, they're trying to live through this with this combination of these awful smells and the toilets now are really causing them problems. But in the film, I think it's portrayed as like a black oil. Yeah, that's... just like a, a black oil in the basin. Yeah. And the... It must be very difficult to portray it, really, how it's meant to be portrayed. Yeah. But that's something that the book does do much better than the film. Definitely. So all of this is kind of going on the same day. Um, it's it's worth pointing out as well that both the book and the film are done in kind of like a diary entry yeah, format. Definitely. If you like. uh, we mentioned this earlier, didn't we? How like it'll say you know Saturday the twenty third, mm-hmm. or like you know Friday the twenty eighth or something. And again, I feel like that was a thing of the mid to late seventies. I don't really get the point behind it. Maybe it makes a bit more sense in the Amityville horror because you know they're there for 28 days. So, like, yeah. you know yeah. when you're getting towards the end. But, like, The Shining does it. Uh, the film of The mm-hmm. Shining, just, like, Saturday. It's like, great, great. Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what relevance does that go? <laughs> Monday. Do you know what I mean? I think it's I just a, exactly a, style, I mean, a style yeah. of the time. Sound yeah. like Abe Simpson now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think as well, perhaps, because you were saying earlier that Jay Anson, was he, like, he was a journalist, was he? A documentary film writer, ah, I believe. right, okay. Yeah. So he brought that kind of documentary feel to the book. Yeah, definitely. It was very and, matter of fact, wasn't it? The, yeah. yeah, and that then obviously carried over into the film. I've recently listened to the audio book as well, um, on your recommendation, actually, and that was brilliant. That that kind of documentary style yeah. works very well. It's quite dry, quite factual, mm-hmm. Um, but with subject matter like this, it works really well. Definitely, and not to uh, j- just do a segue into audiobooks, but even the guy reading it is quite good, the uh, the Amsville Horror yeah. audiobook. For the same reason. For the same reason, he does it very matter-of-factly. He delivers it very dryly, yeah. We, we've discussed about how we hate like audiobook readers when, like the Hunger Games one, I think it's Suzanne <laughs> Collins who yeah. does it, yeah. and when she's like playing male characters like Gail, she's like, oh, I'm playing Gail now. <laughs> you know, like in a really masculine voice, and <laughs> yeah. that's not an issue with the Amsville book. No, audiobooks. He's, he's, he's almost dry to the point of being kind of monotone in some yeah. instances, but that just really works for this book just relaying the facts kind of thing that's all mm-hmm. that's mainly what it is really isn't yeah, it yeah absolutely yeah 
Um, so to go back to this run of incidents that this family are having to live through, I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen to them, and it's really difficult for us to portray them in the same order, in the same kind of diarised fashion yeah. as you would see in the film or read in the book. But, um, I mean, there's an incident with Kathy's aunt where she comes to visit. Now, she's yep. either a nun or an ex-nun. I can't remember. I think in the book, she's an ex-nun. Mm-hmm. In the film, she's still... She's still, she turns yeah. up in a nun's habit. And habit yeah. But she reacts really violently to being in the house in the same way that Father Delaney did. Um, Kathy continually dreams about the DeFeo murders and she actually dreams about details that were never publicised but are later um, yeah. proved to be correct. That's so right. she's the one that woke up screaming, she was shot in the head. And actually, it turns out later that the wife was the only one who was shot in the head. Yeah. Um, but that was never, ever publicised at the time. And so just going off from that, uh, George is awoken at 3.15 every morning. That's right. And yep. at the time, no one knew that that was the time of the murders. But mm-hmm. they found out afterwards, you know, that 3.15 was the established time that he shot his whole, his whole family. Yeah. And actually, the <coughs> Warrens in the film of The Conjuring mention that the time around 3am in the morning is always a time that is associated with demonic happenings because of the Trinity. Yes, it's, that's it's right. It's the demon yeah. mocking the Trinity, the yeah. Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Yep. So 3am is quite a, a relevant time anyway, so it all ties in with that. But again, George Lutz wouldn't have necessarily known or cared <laughs> at yeah. that point what significance that time held. And quite a lot of the time as well when he's awakened um, early in the morning, he will hear a variety of different things going on in the house. And yeah. I love this. It's kind of, and again, I don't mean to revert back to The Shining again yeah. in the same podcast, but it's a similar kind of thing that these people are living in this property and it's kind of coming to life around them. Mm. And I love that feeling that's created that literally George is lying in his bed and he can hear things going on in different parts of the house. Again, I've not put that together. Like we mentioned, the house is like a character. The Overlook Hotel is a character, it's so, you know, character. it's the same kind of feel to it, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, um, he, I mean, there's one incident which really, again, is portrayed so, so well in the book, maybe not so much in the film, but he's literally awoken one morning at 3.15 by the front door being literally ripped off its hinges. Yeah. Um, I think in the book, in the same incident, the garage door had its door ripped off the hinges as right. well. They do call the police with yeah. regard to this incident because um, it, you know it looks for all the world like an attempted break-in but what the police can't get their head around is that it was somebody in the house breaking, breaking out, out yeah. the door was broken outwards yep. um, and by this time there are also um, some hoof prints that are visible in the snow and this is really relevant because this will take us on to what I think is one of the creepiest things about this whole story yeah, definitely. which is the daughter and the her. The so-called invisible friend yeah. that comes Imaginary to play friend, with her. Yeah. yeah. Um, but interestingly, these hoof prints that were seen in the snow, they were witnessed by the policeman that came to investigate why the front door had been blown off its hinges. Yep. Um, <clears throat> although obviously he didn't realise the relevance of them at the time, but the Lutzes did because by this time, this invisible friend had made itself known to the daughter for quite some time. Yep. The daughter, again, we've got two different names going on here, Mm. so we'll need to pick one. In the film, the daughter is Amy. In the book and in real life, she was called Missy, which was short for Melissa. Um, So if we're sticking with the film, I think we'll stick with Amy. Yeah, okay. Um, So Amy has announced to her family that she's got an invisible friend called Jodie. Yeah. Um, And Jodie is creepy for more than one reason, not least of which that it's a pig. Giant demonic pig. <laughs> giant demonic pig, which only a little girl could fall in love with. But can I just call back to the book again for a second? Uh, I think it's quite creepy the way it's introduced in the book because she's asking, uh, sorry, the, the daughter, Amy, yeah. is asking the mother, Kathy, uh, uh, Mum, do, do angels talk? Mm-hmm. And she just thinks, you know, nothing of it. She's like, yeah, yeah, they probably do. Why do you ask? Yeah. And the daughter says, like, you know, because I've got an angel in my room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it leads on from there. She's like, you know, yeah. what do you mean? Well, I think like? Jodie has told her that She's an angel, Jodie is yeah. an angel. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the reader or the viewer is realising by this time that Jodie is probably anything but yeah. <laughs> an angel. Um, 
there are a couple of instances where George or Kathy hear Amy singing or talking, chatting away in her own yeah. bedroom. They go in, there's nobody else there, but one time the little child's rocking chair is rocking away yep. in the corner, which again, very, very spooky. I find that really creepy. And then the main incident where they become really concerned about the fact that there's this pig association yeah. is they go into Amy's room one night and the windows are wide open and it's absolutely Baltic and the little girl's just shivering fast asleep on the bed. They go in to close the window and see the red eyes of a pig mm, yep. um, outside Peering in, in like, the snow. Yeah. And that's when they also see hoof prints out in the snow as well. Yeah, and just to mirror that as well, there's one scene where George has been woken at 3.15 in the morning. He goes to a... He's been annoyed by a, no, a noise out at the, the boathouse. He goes out and looking up to the house, he can see in a, Amy's bedroom, uh, Amy at the window with like this demonic pig behind her kind of thing, which... Again, it's a creep, a yeah, creepier really image, spooky. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we could talk about these incidents literally <laughs> all night, but basically, during the course of this twenty-eight days, it just becomes unbearable. Can I, can I just mention one other thing that I quite liked? Yeah. Uh, George, when he's being woken up at like three fifteen, one of them is that he's lying in bed and he can just hear uh, the sound of like a marching band mm-hmm. downstairs in the uh, on the first floor, yeah. just marching about. Yeah. And it's almost as if, like, at first, the way it's written in the book, he almost doesn't realise at first what he's listening to. And I, I feel like I've had that kind of experience sometimes when you're waking up. And well, it's you, almost like you're tuning in to yeah, what's going on around you. Yeah, exactly, you. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's just a, quite a creepy thought. And as the film goes on, the marching band starts to actually, like, march up the stairs kind of thing. Uh, but the reason I mention it is, in the scene in the film, I don't think it's very well done in the film. I've always thought this. In the film, when they do it, I only recently realised that what they were doing with this scene, I don't know if you were the same with this, but George wakes up in the bed and mm-hmm. he can hear like this faint marching band. But I always thought it was just part of the soundtrack. <laughs> Almost right. as if like yeah. it was like, you know, part just of the composition. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then he runs down and all, everything in the, li- in the living room, all the carpets, the furniture, has all been pushed back to make way for like, you know, a, a marching band to, to, yeah. to, to come through. But in the film, I don't think they do a good job of... If you didn't know that from the book, I don't think in the film you'd realise that's what's happened. You know what I mean? I know. Well, just riding off the back of that, actually, there are a few things here that I've made notes about that are done exceptionally well in the book. Yeah. But perhaps not so much in the film. Mm. Um, And I think one of the key things for me is the the whole issue of the sewing room. Mm. It's It's never really conveyed that strongly in the film that this sewing room is just like it just feels like a place of evil but actually in the book they they all stop going in the sewing room because it's just it just feels so awful yeah um, and there's an incident as well which i know um you know there are, there are quite a lot of scary bits in this film that always stick with you the ceramic lion yeah. is is one of those for both of us i like that bit in the book it's a lion in the film, it's a dragon. Do you remember, like a big green That's dragon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always found that a bit weird. Why you would change that, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, but it's a very big ceramic '70s style ornament, anyway, yeah. which is like the pride and joy of the Lutz family. They've had it in their living room um, since they moved in, but it just keeps moving around, and then it actually trips George one night. And when they look at his ankle the next day, because it's sore, there are teeth marks in his ankle where this yeah. where this ceramic lion has you know has caught him and he's tripped up. So they actually take the ceramic lion and put it upstairs in the sewing room and lock it in the sewing room because they don't like going in there anywhere and they know it's not going to get touched. And the next day it's back down in the living room, you know. Yeah. So I think there's a connection there between that ceramic lion and all the the horrible things that happen with that and yeah. this this awful sewing room that they just end up not using at yeah. all. Um, there's also an incident where the brother, the same brother who got married, Kathy's brother yeah. Jimmy, him and his wife come to actually stay in the Amityville house, which they don't ever do in the film, but in the book they do, and they have their own set of spooky circumstances. Yeah, definitely. The... That feel more like a haunting than anything demonic, but they see a little boy, I think it is, isn't it, sitting yeah. in their bed. and I think the boy's asking where Amy is. 
That's right. Because, ah, do they not stay in Amy's bedroom? Oh, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, they yeah. stay in the little girl's bedroom. Yeah. Um, and a little boy turns up in the middle of the night asking where she is. Now, that's creepy on a number of levels, not least of which because, actually, if you watch some of the documentaries about some of the... Um, oh, of course. Yeah, I want, to, I want to just put that together. Yeah. <laughs> there are... Um, there were a number of kind of psychic evenings that were carried out at the Amityville house following yeah. the Lutzes just fleeing for their lives in mid-January. I think throughout February and March, George Lutz had asked for some experts, parapsychologists, mm. the Warrens, um, to go, and various psychics, to go and spend an evening in the house and try and work out exactly what was going on. Um, now... They during one of those evenings in the in I think it was in the middle to the end of March they set up um, a time lapse camera um, on the landing yep. upstairs just outside of what would have been Missy's or Amy's bedroom yeah and most of the film came back without any changes whatsoever but on one of the photographs there is what looks like quite clearly a little boy peeping around the doorway of that bedroom yeah it's the way that. He's peeping around at that at that point when the, when the yeah. photography goes off. Yeah, it would be hard to even fake that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> just, just get the really timings odd. right. Yeah, really odd picture and just it, yeah. it, you know it's just very creepy to look creepy, at. Definitely. You know, it's not nice, but but it all kind of ties in. I, I've never with, put that together with the boy yeah. in the bedroom. Yeah, maybe it was one of the younger DeFeo boys. You know, it could be mm. that that although. A lot of people agreed afterwards that if there was something in that house, it was demonic in nature, and it was an entity rather than a spirit. That's yeah. not to say that there weren't also spirits in that house. Yep. So there are a number of theories around the whole story of the Amisville horror. Um, the first one is that maybe the DeFeo murders actually created the negative energy. Yeah that then the Lutzes went on to experience. Yeah, I mean, can I just jump in with a point at, at that section? I don't know if you're going to mention this, but they mentioned in the book how the Lutz family, well, George and Kathy, were, were experimenting with transcendental meditation right. at that point. Yeah. Uh, not that that's because why they were haunted, but just an, another explanation that could be possibly what, what opened them up to, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, yeah, to those experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and and it may be that that's the case. I mean, I think the Warrens certainly were of the opinion that the negative energies were already there prior to the DeFeo murders. Um, they called 112 Ocean Avenue a resting place for those demonic entities. Um, now, that also ties in with the fact that Ronald DeFeo, who committed those murders, claimed yeah. from day one that he was possessed by demonic entities. Yeah. Prior to any of this happening with the Lutzes and everything that kicked off then in December 1975... That was his defence, wasn't it? That was his defence, was that, you know, gradually, over a period of time, he'd been overwhelmed by the forces that were in this house. Yeah. What also seems strange is that the DeFeo family had religious statues literally everywhere around this property. Yeah. Um... Literally in the garden, outside the front door, you know, all throughout the house. Yep. Um, so that might tie in with the fact that there was a little bit of background there as well prior to even. Yeah, definitely, words. yep. Um, just one thing as well that absolutely fascinates me that I've got to mention is that in horror films these days, um, you know, quite often you'll hear references to burial grounds. That's the reasons for hauntings. Yeah, definitely. Is that properties are built on burial grounds and particularly in some of the eastern states of America, it's quite often led back to native Indian yeah, burial native grounds. American, yeah. Abs- yeah, native American Indian burial grounds and that's what creates all of these issues. And I think that was kind of um, hinted at in the 2005 remake of the Amityville Horror. That's that was, right. That there was yeah. Some connection with a Native American. Yeah. Um, burial, burial ground. ground. Yeah. Um, what it transpires when George Lutz did his own research into this. Yeah. What he found was that this area in particular, around 112 Ocean Avenue, 
the Native American Indians actually refused to use it as a burial ground yeah. because they believed it to be too infested with demons to be used as a sacred burial ground. Yeah. So that, I mean, to me, all kind of ties in with the fact that this, this piece of land or this area has been a problem way, way, way further back than Ronald DeFeo's murders. Definitely. And he mentioned, you know, the, the kind of the trope of the Indian burial ground thing. Another film that uses that as a basis is Poltergeist, which, uh, which we're yep. big fans of. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously that's fiction, but, you know, the whole mm-hmm. point Similar that kind is. of thing. Oh, it was all built on a burial ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. and originally they were told they moved the bodies, but... Nope, they left the bodies there. Yeah. <laughs> Just moved the headstones. You yeah. moved the headstones. Only but you moved the headstones. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I mean, basically, um, I would say that the book portrays a lot more detail than the film does. Yeah, definitely. That? Yep, yep. Is there anything about the final night you want to go into at all? Or? Um. It's a difficult one to talk about the final night because, again, I think most of the detail I've got on the final night is what I've read. Yeah. It's not really portrayed that well in the film. Yeah. I think this is one case, though, where because they're making a film, they made a few changes to it. I mentioned to you earlier, I don't like the whole angle throughout the film that George Lutz is becoming possessed by. Right, yeah, they really labour that point in the film. It feels like in the film that the point of it is is that the ghosts are trying to get George Lutz to kill his family in the same manner that Ronald DeFeo did. When in the book, it's not really going for that at all. George is a focus of a lot of the activities, but um, there's no real um, indication of possession as such. Yeah. There is um, there is reference to the fact that he does start to take on the mannerisms and the physical appearance of Ronald DeFeo. Yeah. Junior, the one that committed the murders, which I mean, is quite I mean, interesting in its own right. I mean, that is weird when you look at photos of George Lutz and photos of Ronnie DeFeo Junior. They do look very similar, even though yeah. there's a, t- a ten-year age gap between them. Yeah. They do look uncannily alike, you know. And I think it was someone actually. There was a local bar which is mentioned quite a lot again in the books. Oh, the, um, uh, the, the witch's brew. Yeah. Yeah, and it was actually a bartender that when George Lutz went in there for the first time and told him the address of where he lived, mm. this bartender was absolutely gobsmacked because he couldn't believe the coincidence that this guy had moved into One Twelve Ocean Avenue, <laughs> looking the way that he did because he was the absolute image of Ronald DeFeo Jr. Yeah. And sorry, just to go off from that, one thing you've reminded me of there by mentioning that bartender. He tells a story in the book, but the the actual thing, element of it is in the film as well. About, uh, you know, people can say that it's all a hoax and not true, but elements like this are clearly true. They found a hidden room in the basement. That's right, yeah. Which wasn't on any of the, the housing plans or the building plans or anything. And they found a hidden... Uh, room that was like painted red yeah. and it had a weird odour yeah. it was like walled off behind a, a closet or something wasn't it uh, that's right there was some shelving that was being used as like a larder area and Cathy Lutz wanted to move it so when they moved the shelving they knocked through accidentally into yeah. this small room that was not on any of the plans yeah and just to go back to the 2005 remake for a second, <laughs> in, <laughs> oh, that ver- in that version, that like small red room becomes like a massive like apertoire. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, where that's, that's where true. John Ketchum, uh, Ketchum and Killam, Ketchum and Killam, the uh, it's all tied in with the Salem witch trials, isn't it? In the the remake oh, and stuff. Of course it is. Yeah. John Ketchum's a witch that. who was like killing all his victims in this massive abattoir basement that they just yeah. conveniently walled off. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which just, is ridiculous. Got no semblance to any of the actual original stuff. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned throughout the, throughout the remake, Ryan Reynolds has been getting messages on mirrors saying "catch him and kill him, catch him and kill him," yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think as well, just coming back to um, what we were saying about the whole, like the DeFeo story and how the Lutz story then fitted into that. What? Um, I only realised very recently through watching more documentaries about this is that I was very aware that the Lutzes were really heavily criticised in the media after, um, obviously, they'd escaped the house in in January of 1976. They then went on to... um, for Jay Anson to then write this book on their behalf. But they were absolutely criticised in the media by one person in particular, who was a guy called William Weber. 
Yeah. Um, he was their, one of their harshest and most vocal critics. The main reason for this being that they'd actually, they were in uh, about to sign a book deal with William Webber. Yep. Um, now, just, when Just that, to mention, William Webber was the attorney for Ronald DeFeo Jr., Ronald DeFeo, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And that was his involvement with these people. Now, they backed out from this book deal, and that was when Will, William Webber turned on them and, and yep. was really harsh, very vocal, um, criticising them and calling the whole thing a hoax. Calling it all a hoax, and that he helped to create the material for the hoax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it transpires since that the reasons that the Lutzes backed out of the book deal with William Webber was because they found documentation that William Webber and Ronald DeFeo Jr. were actually business partners. Yeah. And Ronald DeFeo Jr. would have stood to have benefited financially had they have gone through with that with book that deal. deal. Yeah. So that was why they decided to back out of that deal. Um, and they were then given the details of Jay Anson, who was the guy that originally then went up, you know, went ahead and did the book. Did the book, yeah. Um, but it's just quite interesting that again, listening to their reasoning for backing out of that deal, it all sounds perfectly plausible. You know, yeah, it sounds like that they were unfortunately surrounded by just a, like a lot of like shysters and stuff at the time, just completely uh, untrustworthy people. Yeah. Uh, who were just trying to take advantage of the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Kaplan was another one who had like a PhD in parapsychology or something. But called himself a vampirologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when George Lutz found out he was calling himself a vampirologist, he was like, I- I'm sorry, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, want no part yeah. <laughs> of this. And again, he then turned and claimed the whole thing was a hoax. So yeah. there just seems to be this pattern that they were consistently let down by people who were then the ones that were their harshest critics. Yep. Um, and ultimately, did any of this bring the Lutzes any financial gain or success or anything? Yeah. Not that I can see. And just in terms of it being whether it's a hoax or not, whether they planned a hoax, you'd have to be quite confident of what you've created. If your plan in 1975 is to abandon your house... Mm-hmm. Give away your house back. Give your house back to the bank. Yeah. On the knowledge that you're then going to like that the gen that the general public will be intensely fascinated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't gauge that kind of thing, can no. you? You know what I mean? No. If that was the plan, obviously it worked out that way in the end. But you can't you can't bank on that kind of thing as no. working. And I you think know what from I mean? what you were saying, you know, I mean, most of, whatever financial gain they did get from the book or subsequent um, publications or whatever. They ended up spending in court cases anyway, just trying to defend their own name. You yeah, know? it was mentioned on that on that History's Mysteries documentary that George mm-hmm. Lutz uh, spent a lot of money just in in legal lawsuits against William Webber, against yeah. Stephen Kaplan. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, I don't think they were, they really benefited. No, they ended up divorced. Yeah, Kathy Lutz. Her health just deteriorated from quite an early age, didn't it? Yeah, they, well, well they've both died now, haven't they? Uh, both yeah, George and, and Kathy. Yeah, they've both passed away now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, anyway. So, just to recap on the film itself, I think, personally, I think the film itself is great when compared to the horror films of today. Mm-hmm. It's great if you like a genuinely creepy atmospheric film with no CGI monsters yep. or contrived jump scares. Um you know, if that's what you're into, then this is the film for you, definitely. Yeah. What are you going to give it out, out of five stars, do you I think? I would go for a four and a half out of five. I'm going to have to push you for, for one. What what, what are you picking? Four or four and a half? Four and a half. Oh, did you, is that what you said? <laughs> oh, you're going to go four, four and a half. Four, um, four and a half. Right, right, with you, with you. Uh, yeah, just to mention, there are a few things in the book that I do think... Sorry, a few things in the film that I think that they changed that I do think work for the film. We mentioned earlier uh, off the pod about the ending, how they make the ending more elaborate. Like they get in the original story, they flee the house, get into the van, and just drive away. In the film, they flee the house, get into the van, and realise they've left Harry in the house, and George yeah. has to go back in on his own to get the dog. And uh, we never mentioned the well either. There's like there's like a yeah, there's a well in a well, the film, um, isn't yeah, in there? The but again, I've not really touched oh, on oh, that. Oh, no, because... it, was, it was in the book as well, the well. Yeah, but it didn't really hold any significance, significance did no. it? 
Uh, and in the film, he, he falls through the stairs into the well. That's right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, totally fabricated for the film, but it works as a finale kind yeah. of thing. The, no, it does. It does. Yeah. It's very suspenseful. But then there's the other elements, which I mentioned earlier, I don't like the whole possession angle. It's just a trope of films, isn't it? You know, that, mm-hmm. as we mentioned about the ex-husband thing, Kathy's ex-husband, in any other film, that would have been like a whole kind of subplot. Yeah. And I applaud them for not doing that. But then in other other areas, they have gone back to those kind of tropes, you know, yeah. and re- yeah. relied on those kind of things. Um, but for me, ultimately, it's just not as good a story as the book version. Mm-hmm. I would agree. For me, the book version is the like the primo, you know, five out of five mm-hmm. version of this story. And I'm going to give it four out of five for the film. Oh, okay. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks very much for that. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, no worries. I think I think we're all done, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, have you got anything, anything else you want to mention going on from no. that? No, that's me done. Okay, so have you enjoyed it? It's been wonderful, thank yeah, you. I've enjoyed myself. I really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, just to let you know, uh, social media, you can uh, tweet us at Podcast at twitter.com. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> at twitter, at Podcast. You can... Uh, Contact me at Taylor1980 or you can email at uh, don't spoil the ending at gmail.com. You haven't got any social media or anything out here that you want to give out, no. Okay, uh, hopefully, I'll be doing a, another spin off soon, uh, JT at the Movies episode two. That should be coming up hopefully quite shortly. Excellent. Uh, I'll get, around, get back around to doing that again. But uh, yeah, I think we're all done, aren't we? Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. So uh, yeah, thanks very much. It's been, been, been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. uh, Cheers, guys. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.